0: 266, the first of three volumes, volume one of those three, entitled From the Esoteric School, Esoteric Lessons 1904-1909 to 1909 by Rudolf Steiner, translated by James H. Hines. This is uh, the 17th section of these readings, which are not in a per-chapter uh, construction. And this is the last section on the year 1908. It begins uh, with Esoteric Lesson in Hamburg, May 31st, 1908, Record A, Manuscript from Camilla Vondry, Record B, Notes from Amelie Wagner, Supplemented by Notes from Mrs. Shield, Record A. What we have heard in Esoteric Lessons, we must allow to pass before our soul again and again. Only then will we gradually release the forces that are hidden in what is given. In this way we learn to distinguish thoughts that work productively in the soul, from those that only reproduce what has already been given, thus are unproductive. If we look at a watch, we can become clear in our thoughts regarding how it was constructed. Also how all the gears are set in motion and maintained. But those are unproductive thoughts. The person who first thought up the watch had productive thoughts. His or her work originated in these thoughts. All engagement with the sensory world, everything that we think about that world, is unproductive. Most thinking in our present-day science is unproductive. But when we occupy ourselves with what is given to our thinking in esoteric lessons, then we are busy with productive thinking, and that is a source of strength for our soul. Such thoughts must pass through our soul in the proper sequence. Just as an organism could not exist if a leg were attached where an arm belongs, so too must everything in our thinking be consequent. One such thought structure we want to place before the soul today. Wisdom is often spoken of. However, wisdom is not what is often called wisdom in daily life. People think that a person is wise who knows a lot. One does not yet have wisdom through much knowing. Knowing lives in heads that are full of other people's thoughts. Wisdom lives in the heart that listens to its own. But that does not mean the thoughts that one has concerning the outer world, but rather the thoughts that can quietly appear from the spiritual world. One achieves cleverness through much knowing. Cleverness is based on the experiences one has made his or her own. But wisdom is what streams into us and then again out of us as power from the spiritual world. Here wisdom can come forth from the simplest soul, from the lips of children. When what flows forth from the spiritual world comes more from the feelings, then it is wisdom. However, if it stimulates people with energy and enterprise, if productivity predominates, then it is love. But here one must understand what true love is. Someone could feel only compassion for another's misfortune, but that is not true love. The compassion only becomes love if one actively reaches into the situation and helps. Wisdom and love constitute the I, capital. The I is love and wisdom that have become will. Everything that the I, that is the true I, not the reflection of the I, does, results from wisdom and love. This is the higher triad, I, wisdom, love. Reflected somewhat deeper down, Wisdom becomes feeling, from love, will, from the I, thinking. In yet lower regions, the four temperaments appear as reflections. First there is the choleric temperament. There are beings, angelic beings, who have no physical body. Among these angels are some who are always at work, creating. The angels have the various temperaments entirely unmixed while humans possess compound temperaments. All four kinds work on humans only in different measure. The first kind of angel is the kind that weaves the choleric temperament into humans. Such people are full of initiative, eager to act. Then, secondly, there are sanguine angels. The temperament that these angels inculcate makes people easily influenced by everything lofty and beautiful, without it always being translated into deed. Such people are not very energetic, but rather susceptible to influences, easily enthused. However, they do not stay long with something. Thirdly, there are phlegmatic angels. Those people influenced by these angels are not interested in what others have done. They do not let things be, constantly changing around, changing them around. They do everything fluently, indeterminately. This is already expressed in the word phlegma, which means phlegm. People with a phlegmatic character are not interested in anything in particular. When they need to make a decision, they are unable. They always say, oh, no, not that, and not the other either. They cannot decide or conclude. They always miss opportunities. This character is also expressed in their body. Soft forms are present. Everything is indeterminate. One can also recognize phlegmatic people by their soft rolling gait. And yet, such people can have an expressed preference for certain pleasures, for example foods, and bring them to bear everywhere. Thus they can also be choleric. Fourth, there are melancholic angels. People who are influenced by them see everything as dark and dim. They see the worst in everything. Such people wallow in their problems. They are occupied only with themselves. They create nothing in terms of progress. For this reason, they have no joy of creation. They become dark and gloomy. All characters must be judged from the point of view of asking what the individual does for the progress of the whole. If these characteristics are reflected even more deeply, then the choleric corresponds to the element of fire, the sanguine to air, the phlegmatic to water, the melancholic to earth. There everything becomes rigid and solid. We should think about such figures again and again. They cause our soul organism to be properly formed. We should think such figures through clearly. Our inner soul life cannot grow strong through our thoughts swinging back and forth. To place such forms now and again before our spiritual eye brings strength to the soul. And there's a then a composite of all the diagrams that he's discussed. End of record A. Record B. Choleric, solid, determined, active. Form is often stocky, square-billed, short. Napoleon was an unmistakable choleric, but also displayed other sides. Sanguine, quickly enthused, easily ignited, little enterprise. Phlegmatic, phlegma, phlegm, phlegm circulation, cold-blooded has a dissolving power, does not like to hold together, does not adhere to individual things. It is a characteristic that prevents petrifaction. Melancholic, narrow, brooding within oneself, relates everything to self-limiting, hardening. In the spiritual world there are beings who represent these four characters very distinctly, unmixed. With humans, these characteristics are mixed. Even with Napoleon, we can recognize still other sides of his character alongside his choleric. That's the end of that esoteric lesson. Next esoteric lesson was given in Berlin on June 5, 1908. Record A, notes from Ida Noch and Wilhelm Hüberschleiden. Record B, manuscript from Camilla Wandry. Record A. What is given in an esoteric lesson differs from what is given in an exoteric lesson less in terms of content than in the way this content is given. Esotericists are to take in not only knowledge, but rather each such lesson should be an experience in their soul. We should be a different person at the end of the lesson than we were at the beginning. Already in the earliest schools it was taught that if you intend to do something and you do not know whether you should do it or leave it be, then leave it be. This sentence you must not say to an exotericist, otherwise he or she would become idle. It is related to the esoteric life. Parenthesis, Confucius is saying, if you plan on doing something and are not certain whether you should do it, then leave it be, close quote, is only for esotericists not for exotericists for otherwise little would happen in the world also no experience would be acquired close parenthesis the following conversation is in the basic book of the rosicrucian school the heart of the pupil asks the teacher how do i find the path to higher development the teacher answers by finding the place that is free of everything personal the heart of the pupil asks where do I find this place? The teacher, in your eye, that wills without self, that thinks without sense perception. Question. How can I will without a self, think without the senses? Answer. Will without your eye, think outside yourself. The question is often posed whether it is not better to act in the world, to work in the world with good deeds in the time that would be required to develop oneself. From esotericism the answer must be given, the time used for development is not lost time. For through the fact that we make ourselves more perfect, we are only first becoming capable of working truly correctly and well for humanity. Deeds in life that may appear, however, so good can nevertheless damage. The ultimate result simply cannot be known. There is now a chaos in our souls. We must form them into an organism, as our body was created earlier, through the wisdom of higher beings, into a well-formed organism. We achieve this by placing certain lines and figures before our souls and become very clear about their meaning. What such figure is the following. And now, readers aside, there's all the diagrams as there was in the earlier uh, le- uh, esoteric lesson. And of readers aside. The three points above, like the three corners of a triangle, have been voluntarily joined together. If these are reflected in the soul, they fit together into the solid form, an equilateral triangle. I points to a certain goal, A equals devotion, O equals the encompassing, the divinity, U equals resting, feeling oneself protected in God and resting in God. For what they say in the esoteric school, lecturers have have to answer only to the White Lodge. What they say in exoteric lectures must be said in harmony with the issues of the age, the events of the age with the surrounding world and the demands of the age one should never feel fear but think only of success and no matter how ill one may be there is always a basic element of health and life forces present that one must trust that's the end of record a record b and it's an excerpt a devotion guidance toward the divine e a certain direction that should lead to the divine O, the encompassing, God and the enclosing of the revealed form. U, calm resting, feeling oneself protected in divine peace, God. A, streaming forth from expansive wits, overcoming difficulty. I, revelation of the divine in the human being. Before which shy devotion yields, it expresses that even more. Here humans feel themselves to be in their form as if enclosed, and God is at work outside. There is no point in the universe that does not have power in it. The effectiveness of Atman Buddhi, Manas, is shaped in the human eye, EYE. There's a triangle Buddhi on the left corner. Manus on the right corner, Atman on the top. It appears there is a a physical eye drawn in the center. This symbol also works upon us at night. There, it keeps away the chaotic impressions of the day. End of that esoteric lesson. Next esoteric lesson given in Munich on June 14, 1908. Record A, manuscript from Matilda Scholl and unknown. Record B, manuscript from Eugenie Bredov Record A. The time of waiting that esotericists must go through until they attain their goal, entering higher worlds, often seems very long to them. Some believe that precisely in their case, spiritual organs are forming especially slowly. Now, even the mildest impatience always delays the formation of these organs. And when pupils complain about a failure very often, they are wrong. For four-fifths of pupils have already formed their spiritual organs, often before they have any awareness of them, before they understand how to use them. It is the same situation with our organs of hearing when we are sleeping. The ears are opened, as always, even in sleep, and yet people perceive nothing of the outer world, because the eye with the astral body, has left the physical and etheric bodies. Experiencing the impressions that the outer world is constantly conveying to our senses has a destructive effect on our sense organs. When we look at a rose, the red color, the form, etc., has a destructive effect on our retina. The sensation of the rose travels along our nerve centers and has a destructive effect on them. What the retina receives, the astral body throws, as an impression, into the etheric body, and thus it daily receives numerous impressions from outside. What has a destructive effect in the physical body has a constructive effect in the etheric body. The etheric body is built up by the impressions and experiences from outside. The same relationship holds between the astral body and the eye. The astral body is also destroyed by external impressions. The eye, however, should work in a constructive way. The astral body comes to a new incarnation, organized harmoniously, and is only made disharmonious by life The astral body experiences a human being entering a new life, and that is the esoteric explanation for why the greatest proportion of children cry after birth. Birth is painful because the entrance into life disturbs the harmony of the astral body. This harmony can only be restored by the eye, by creating mental images that are viable and are spread from the eye out through the astral body on to the etheric body. The impressions that we convey to our etheric body in ordinary life are mostly without value with respect to their life forces. We should now create mental images that are clear, properly organized and therefore viable. Schematically, we can present this in the following way, and there is a picture. What the sense organs receive from outside, they cast, for example, the I-E-Y-E, on the etheric body, upon which the picture comes into being. Now, the capital I works upon the etheric body through the astral body, forming in the astral body a thought, which it then casts upon the etheric as an impression. What is important is that these thoughts be correct and viable. These viable thoughts form our spiritual organs, which are to make us clairvoyant. As the gods created our physical body to be harmonious with every organ, every member in its correct place, so we must form our astral body and etheric body to be harmonious. We must make our thoughts viable. Time does not play a role in this. A practiced esotericist often needs only a minute in order to organize his or her impressions. Through meditation, by immersing ourselves in certain concepts, in eternal thoughts, we create such life-bearing, organ-forming impressions in our etheric body. For example, it is important for all pupils to meditate on the concept of wisdom. But this does not mean that they should acquire a firmly delineated intellectual definition of wisdom, but rather, on the contrary, they should cultivate flexible, easily altered views about it. Wisdom and cleverness, or education, are very different things. In higher worlds, where everything is specified, There are beings that are very wise, without any thinking at all. They carry out plans full of wisdom that have been thought up by other beings. Also among human beings there are those who are wise without being clever, without possessing any kind of intellectual framing. If we meditate on the concept of wisdom in the right way, then something of wisdom itself will flow into us, enlightenment will come to us from higher worlds. A second concept that we should meditate on is love. What the average person calls love is often only the crassest egotism. Even the love of a mother caring for an ill child is often only the expression of egotism because she is terrified of losing the child. True love is always productive. For this reason, in this present time, as harsh as it sounds, it is almost only artists who have any sense of love while they devote themselves completely to a work they are creating. Thus the gods created our earth out of love, as they devoted themselves completely to their creating, and so to speak, sweated creation out of themselves. What can unite love and wisdom out of themselves is the I, capital, the I that is constantly creating itself, that must always anew be eyed, as Fichte says. There's a little triangle I at the top, willing on the left, love on the right. Fichte's philosophy understands correctly, when understood from this standpoint, that the I must constantly create and recognize itself on you. This is also what Meister Eckhart means when he says, quote, If I were a king and did not know it, then I would not be a king. Close quote. That, is a, that is, of what use is it to be a king if one is not conscious of being a king? Everything casts its shadow from higher planes onto lower planes. And so these three, I, wisdom, and love, operate on the next lower plane, as thinking, feeling, and willing. Here they are not as specified. For this reason we draw them as a connected triangle beneath them. Those who reflect on this intensely will realize that the I translates itself into thinking. Wisdom goes into feeling, and love into productive will, which is the impulse to create, to devotion. It is good to meditate on the four additional points as a supplement to these three points, this triangle. When humans are pushing forward to a new incarnation, higher beings of four sorts create for them their etheric body, the sanguine, choleric, phlegmatic, and melancholic beings. Every individual receives something from each kind of these beings, though one or the other may predominate. This predominant temperament is expressed in the gestures of the person, especially of the child. Parenthesis, sanguine children skip, their glance glides heedless over many things. A choleric child, for example, will firmly seize a pair that is offered to him or her in an entirely different way than a phlegmatic child. Close parenthesis. For this reason, due to the interaction of all four temperaments, people have a phlegmatic feeling for one thing and a choleric feeling for another. These temperaments balance one another. For example, the beings of phlegma are the enemies of everything unimaginative, everything petty, to which people might fall prey if they were to get too much melancholy. These four astral beings also have their expression in the physical realm, the choleric in fire, the sanguine in air, the phlegmatic in water, the melancholic in the earth. Our earth is the outer expression for melancholy that has become physical. If we meditate on all of this, then in the course of time, in a quiet hour, we will arrive at a state in which, in full clear consciousness, yet having lost consciousness for the outer world, we will recognize in this condition what the eternal is, that birth and death are only transformations. The etheric body will be illuminated by the eye from the other side, and we will recognize and see the eternal living thoughts which we impress into it, in their effects. We will recognize that these thoughts created the clairvoyant organs, that we are now able to make use of. If, out of impatience, we accelerate this process in any way, the etheric body will be illuminated by the eye, and we will see therein only what life put in terms of external impressions, distorted pictures that are often horrible or seductive, beautiful, deceptive pictures, For this reason, great patience and caution are advised, so that we create well-formed, correct spiritual organs, for we are thereby creating our future, our new earth. Our present planet, the gods, have meditated, and what we create should become just as wisdom-filled as what they created. Every enjoyment of art also strengthens the organs of clairvoyance, For example, when we look at a statue, it is good to feel the forms and lines in thought. That strengthens the creative capacities. End of record A. Record B excerpt. Since modern humans live in the world, everything that enters them through their sense organs works on the etheric body and is imprinted in it. Only in sleep is this not the case. Now, everything that influences the human being spiritually is brought about by the eye through the astral body. That also is imprinted on the etheric body. If very many pictures from the outer world are imprinted into the etheric body, then there is no space left for pictures of the spiritual world. For this reason, it is so important for the development of humanity to do meditation and concentration exercises. For thus, spiritual pictures are imprinted in the etheric body. It is less important that this be practiced for a long period of time in one session than that it be done with great intensity, that the entire outer world disappear and we live only in the spiritual world. The end of the esoteric lesson. The next esoteric lesson given in Munich on June 15, 1908, manuscript from Mathilde Scholl. The goal of this esoteric lesson is always deeper penetration into esotericism until we can pass over into exercises, mantric exercises. In order to push forward to the great secret, it is necessary to set aside our illusions At certain stages of evolution, illusions are necessary for human beings. An esoteric pupil will, with time, set them aside. The great illusion of the personal I is to be set aside. The true I of the human being is not contained in it, but rather comes out of the indefinite and takes its course into the indefinite we become conscious of the I in the physical world through the senses. This appears to contradict the fact that a certain point in the etheric head came together with one like it in the physical head during the time of the Atlanteans, and in this way the I entered into the human being. Yet this I was, so to speak, only like a small little skin, a little pocket, that sank down into the human being and the true eye which was spread out through the planets from saturn to vulcan radiated into it the best symbol is this little pocket is like a mirror into which the true eye streams from this string of planets i said that it goes into the indefinite because it did not begin in saturn and after the Vulcan state, it continues further. Therefore we imagine it as a line on which individual personal lives are formed like running knots. If we know how to extinguish the personal I that we become conscious of through the senses, then the line that leads from the indefinite into the indefinite lies before us quote, the illusion of the senses covers the illusion of time, close quote. Yet, it lies before us as a line, only through the illusion of time. If we think of this line as somewhat curved, then it must close in a circle. Therefore, the second sentence, the illusion of time, separates Alpha Omega. I am Alpha Omega, or I Alpha Omega. The true significance of the snake that bites its own tail, the I, Alpha Omega, equals E-A-O, was the foundation for the Atlantean Tau. End of esoteric lesson. The next esoteric lesson given in Castle, July 4th, 1908. Notes from Margarete Morgenstern. Since Munich, 1907. Coordination. Instead of subordination, harmony in esoteric teachings. The difference between exoteric and esoteric presentations. In an exoteric presentation, the speaker is responsible for what is said. In an esoteric, the being, for whom he or she is the voice, who stands behind him or her, is responsible we are to understand an esoteric lesson as a message from these beings. The six exercises. The sixth equals combination of the five. Harmony of intellectual, feeling, and moral aspects. The pupil must be equally grounded in all three. If humans without injury went—excuse want to voluntarily leave their body and enter a state... That is neither sleep, that is neither death nor sleep, then it is necessary that someone help him and protect them. Let me read that again. If humans without injury want to voluntarily leave their body and enter a state that is neither death nor sleep, then it is necessary that someone help them and protect them. And this is Christ. The etheric body is loosened, lifted out of the physical body through the Christ impulse. The etheric body is permeated by the Holy Spirit through the Christ impulse. And the Holy Spirit, our higher eye, causes forces to stream to us from outside. That's the end of that esoteric lesson. The next esoteric lesson given in Stuttgart on August 5, 1908, Record A, manuscript from Lilla Harris, Equivalent Notes from Anonymous with Other Drawings. Record B, Notes from the Collection of Elizabeth Freda, Record C, Manuscript from Alice Kinko. Record D, Notes from Teresa Walter. Record A. All esotericists who are striving for inner development must become clear concerning their connection with the surrounding world and the spiritual beings that live within it with whom they are constantly connected and that stream in and out of them. Let us consider the human being. To begin with, we have the physical body. That the physical body is so wisely composed is due to the work of spiritual beings. The powers that work on it, in the four elements, earth, water, air and fire, are the archai, or primal powers. They stream in and out of the physical body. Thus the archangels or archangeloi work in the etheric body, the angels or angeloi in the astral body. The sentient soul is a member of the astral body. The mites, dunamis, are at work on it. The powers, exousiae, are at work on the intellectual soul, and the dominions, curiosities, are at work on the consciousness-soul. Even loftier beings are at work on the higher members of the human being, the seraphim on the spirit-self, manas, cherubim on life-spirit, buddhi, and the thrones on spirit-human being, atman. If esoteric pupils of the Christian school want to know their own essential nature, then they have to look at this picture, that the human being is like a tree with its roots in the spiritual world. That is what was understood by sitting under the fig tree or by the Buddha under the bodhi tree. When Jesus said to Nathaniel, "As I saw you sitting under the fig tree, I recognized you," John 2:45. This meant that Nathaniel had placed himself in such a relationship to the world surrounding him. Yggdrasil, too, the world ash tree in old Nordic mythology, is a representation of this tree. The powers that work on the physical body are the archai. They are not all the same kind, but one can distinguish among them four special kinds of beings. They are not incarnated in physical bodies. Their bodily nature is... They have brought down only as far as the ether. These are the four kings that work on the human being in the ether. That human beings have a physical body is due to these beings who live in the ether. We arrive at entirely false ideas, if we want to understand the ether in such a way that by ascending from the solid to the liquid to air and to ever finer substances, we come to the ether. The nature of the ether is essentially different from physical substances. The four powers that influence human beings in the etheric and go in and out of them, according to which human physical bodies are formed, are to be understood as the four temperaments. The powers are incarnated in them. We have beings who work in the choleric, others in the sanguine, others in the phlegmatic, and others in the melancholic temperament. They all have their special task. The beings that have the choleric element for their incarnation work in the element of warmth in the human body. The beings that are incarnated in the sanguine element work in the air element. The beings that are incarnated in the phlegmatic element work in the fluids. And the beings that are incarnated in the melancholic work in the solid or earthly element. Although usually only one of the four temperaments predominates in everyone, the others are, nevertheless, represented. They are all significant for us. The melancholic temperament has the significance that it equips the body in such a way that a person is in a position to form firm concepts that remain the same, so that if he or she thinks horse today, tomorrow this term will contain the same concept for him or her. On the other hand, the phlegmatic temperament has the significance for human beings that concepts nevertheless remain fluid, that they are always in a position to absorb something new. When human beings think, then something like this is formed in their aura. There's a picture. A uniform mass, and within it more solid parts, the thoughts. In some people these thought forms have the tendency to remain solid. In others they are constantly changing. A person can attempt to explain something to another, and they will not understand one another, because one has solid thought-forms and cannot take up the thoughts of the other. However, if his or her thought-forms are flexible, then the new thoughts can penetrate, and the two people understand one another extremely well. An esotericist must cultivate this flexibility with thought-forms. This is extremely important. The fact that a person can do this is based on phlegma. It is backward to think that a person has this or that temperament because he or she has this or that physical body. The truth is exactly the reverse. The physical body is formed from the temperaments by the spirits that work in the person. One can say which temperament predominates in people from their stance, how they place their foot on the ground, from the movement of their hands, from the glance of their eyes. It is important to permeate our feeling with these truths. The end of record a record b if we wish to understand the human being as a spiritual being in higher worlds, then we must free ourselves from the ideas and mental pictures of materialistic science, which thinks that the human being is composed from atoms. It is necessary for us to form new ideas and mental pictures. With every physical breath we take, etheric currents also flow through our bodies, and spiritual beings enter and exit and connect us with the spiritual world. The view that sees the higher human members as formed only from a finer form of matter still remains a materialistic view. For spiritual observation, the human being can appear as the world tree that is rooted in the cosmos and whose growth is accompanied by supersensible beings. There are four great groups of etheric beings working and living in the elements of earth, water, air and fire. A person's temperament is determined by that group of these beings that is working most intensely in him or her. In esoteric pictorial language, sitting under the fig tree or under the bodhi tree signifies that one knows the esoteric structure of the human being. Temperament is significant for the evolution of humankind, the choleric temperament, which to external observation is considered unfavorable, serves to give thoughts solidity. The phlegmatic temperament protects a person from too much solidity and crystallization in thoughts, for which, precisely in our present era of evolution, there are many possibilities. Thought forms that have been handed down through centuries, the progress of materialistic science, heredity, lead to the danger of crystallization of human thoughts. But an esotericist must be concerned to keep his or her thinking flexible so that it can take up new impulses. A clairvoyant sees rigid, unchangeable inclusions in people who are limited in forming ideas in their thinking, when conversing with a person who can think flexibly, these rigid forms make a mutual understanding impossible. The more flexible and capable of transformation our thoughts, the more knowledge we can absorb. Sharp criticism injures. Nevertheless, a free power of discrimination is necessary. End of record B. Uh, Concerning the following diagrams, the correspondences between the members of the human being and the individual hierarchies are somewhat different. For this reason, the following diagrams are given. I'm going to just read these across, how they're related to each other. From record A, Atman to the thrones, Budhi to the cherubim, Manas to the seraphim, Consciousness soul to the dominions, intellectual soul to the authorities, sentient soul to the powers, astral body to the angels, etheric body to the archangels, physical body to the archai. The next one is variations from another text, otherwise identical to Record A, Atman to thrones, Buddhi to cherubim, Manas to seraphim, Consciousness soul to dominions, intellectual soul to powers, sentient soul to authorities, astral body to angels, etheric body to archangels, physical body to archai. From record B, spirit being to seraphim, excuse me, spirit human being to seraphim, life spirit to cherubim, spirit-self to powers, astral body to principalities, etheric body to archangels, physical body to angels. Record C. Only drawing without text. Atman to thrones, buddhi to cherubim, manas to seraphim, consciousness-soul to dominions, intellectual-soul to authorities, sentient-soul to powers, astral body to angels, etheric body, archangels, physical body, archai. Now, record D. The Tree of Life as the gods work on the individual body of the human being. Again, there's a chart. I'll read it again. Spirit, human being, Atman, seraphim. Life, spirit, buddhi, cherubim. Spirit, self, manas, thrones. Consciousness soul dominions or curiosities. Intellectual soul powers, dunamis. Sentient soul authorities, exousiae. Astral body, angel. Etheric body, archangel. Physical body, principalities. End of esoteric lesson. Esoteric lesson, next one, is from Stuttgart, August ninth, 1908. Notes from the collection of Elizabeth Freda. There are many people who think that they take pains for the salvation of humankind from morning until evening. But it is questionable whether that is in fact the case. Clairvoyant sight has shown that strivings for the salvation of humanity that come out of materialistic thinking do precisely what works wrongly and it can lie in the karma of a person that he or she should not yet be active in this service, but rather should wait until the time of maturity has arrived for a specific task. Then such a task can be gently whispered to him or her by higher beings and therefore not be caused by outer circumstances. During waking day life, All kinds of sense impressions influence human beings. For those who are entirely devoted to the impressions of the outer world then determine what is taken up. Because of this, in the night, the human astral body is confused and torn and cannot be put in order by spiritual beings. For such people, life is then a process of destruction. Esotericists are distinguished through the fact that they meditate, immerse themselves in their own experience, and thereby let their lives be determined less by external circumstances. Those who again and again strive in meditation are not exposed at night to the astral confusions and make themselves capable of receiving instruction from spiritual beings and it is very necessary that we be instructed in this way. For since November 1879, we have entered a new stage of human evolution. Then the Archangel Gabriel's leadership of humankind was concluded. Gabriel had worked for 400 years on the formation of a new organ in the human brain for regulating and determining births. He is also the one who proclaimed the birth of the Savior to the Virgin Mary. The new organ, that thus only since Gabriel's regency, since the beginning of those 400 years, is given to us, gives us the possibility of understanding spiritual truths. People in the 16th century would not have had any understanding for our theosophy. The successor of the Archangel Gabriel, the Archangel Michael, now has the responsibility for stimulating humans to use this newly acquired organ. Those who do not use it, let it decay and fall into ruin. Such people then fall under the influence of Michael's adversary, Mammon or Beelzebub. He is the god of hindrances, who wants to hinder humankind from advancing. Under his influence, bacteria and bacilli also come into existence. In this way, in the future, horrible epidemics could arise, also strange neurological disorders. Children would be born into the world with ruined nervous systems. After a further 400 years, Michael's leadership will be followed by that of the archangel Orifiel, who also reigned at the time of Christ's birth. Arifiel gives divine wrath, but only those who have achieved a high level of development are allowed to express this wrath. Jesus also drove the money changers out of the temple. That's the end of that esoteric lesson. The next esoteric lesson was given in Stuttgart on August 13, 1908. Notes from the collection of Elizabeth Freyda. How should esotericists relate to the question of nutrition? First of all, we must be clear that we can never achieve spiritual development through any method of nourishment, no matter how good it is, so that speaking radically, one can say that it is of no concern what we use for our nourishment. Speaking practically, however, one makes spiritual development more difficult and even impossible through wrong nutrition. In earlier times, in Atlantean times, alcohol was not on the earth. It came later in order to help people toward their individualization. It closes people off from their higher capacities and encloses them within themselves. For this reason alcohol was used in the Dionysian mysteries. However, today, Everyone in civilized countries has already reached this stage, and alcohol today is only an evil. People who use it lose the ability to adapt to others and to understand them. Alcohol injures esotericists especially because they transform all the higher powers they develop into powers of the personal eye. Again and again they enclose these within themselves, and, so to speak, tear apart the astral body through the two opposing streams, the higher and the lower powers of the eye. That principle through which everyone can consciously achieve his or her individualization has been brought to humankind through Christ's coming to the earth. For this reason Christ Jesus said, quote, I am the true vine. By using alcohol, we prepare a breeding ground for numerous bands of spiritual beings, just as a poorly cleaned room is found to be full of flies. The meat that we eat is permeated by the astral body of the animal. That makes it necessary for our own astral body to cooperate in order to digest it. In this way, excessive demands are made upon it and it cannot dedicate itself to his own task, the creation of pictures. Furthermore, in the night, it cannot properly leave the etheric body, but rather is forcibly held by it. Thus, it is also hindered in its nightly task of restoring the life forces. Vegetarian Nutrition which consists only of physical and etheric components, supports the creation of great encompassing pictures and therefore provides better insight that allows a better overview of matters without too much weighing and considering. Pure substance of the sun is also assimilated in us through this nutrition. The greater effort required to digest vegetarian nourishment does not exhaust our forces, but rather does the opposite in calling forth spiritual forces, as is always the case. The more one slaves for something good, the more strength one gets. Vegetarian nutrition is outstanding for doctors and lawyers, who thereby more readily understand their patients' or their clients' business. But it is not right for bankers, industrialists, technicians, business people, in short for everything connected to the work of calculation. One loses, namely, the physical ability to reason. For this reason, vegetarianism should never be praised in general, as often happens in the world. It is also possible that through heredity someone has received a body that cannot endure vegetarianism at all then one should simply not want to strive toward higher exercises. Also a lot of physical training, exercise, bathing, which is recommended so much, is wrong for esotericists. It draws them down into the center of the physical. While they should be striving, above all, to behave calmly, not to walk too much, to move their limbs as little as possible, Parenthesis, certain parts of the physical body, hair, nails, are indeed permeated by the astral body, but it does not work into them directly, so that we can cut them off without feeling pain. So also the milk that the cow gives is not permeated by astral substance, and therefore does not have the deleterious influence such as found in meat. Close parenthesis. Parenthesis, after a pause... The second part follows close parenthesis. When people begin to become esotericists, they do not need any particular faith, only trust in their teacher as is necessary for all instruction, and they need their healthy common sense. They will then come to the conviction themselves that there must be masters of wisdom, since it would be illogical to assume that evolution stops precisely with us. But to begin with, that they cannot yet know who these masters are. It is only important that their teacher know. They relate to the fundamental truths such as karma and reincarnation by arranging to live their life as an experiment, so to speak, as if these teachings were true. They can then test for themselves whether or not these teachings are true. Thus everything that befalls them they immediately look upon, such that they themselves must have laid down the cause and will behave accordingly. Jesus says that one should offer the other cheek if one is struck on the cheek. For when we have also been struck on the other cheek, we know that we ourselves have put it forward for this purpose and can understand that fundamentally speaking we did the same with the first one. Every esoteric school is aware of the best means of bringing the pupil to knowledge, tested through thousands of years of experience. For this reason, certain general rules of meditation are given, and also special rules for each pupil. But there are also certain auxiliary exercises that one can add to one's usual exercises. Pupils can continue each of these exercises for six to eight weeks or as long as they consider it necessary, and then start again at the beginning. There are six such exercises. Number 1. Concentration We take an object. The best is something insignificant that does not fascinate us. We reflect on this object for at least five minutes without slipping into thoughts about other things, constantly holding the same thing in our thoughts. We can prepare ourselves for this by acquainting ourselves with the object beforehand. After several days, we can choose another object. This exercise awakens in the pupil the feeling of solidity by making the chakra between the eyebrows active. From there, we should send this feeling through the brain into the spinal cord. Number 2. Exercise of the Will We undertake to do something every day at a certain moment, again also an action that is insignificant by itself. This exercise also gives solidity. 3. Training for equanimity. This means that we are not alternatingly up one minute and down the next. A joke is not valued less if we do not let loose with laughter. A pain is borne less selfishly if we do not look at it too intensely. This gives a feeling of equanimity, peace, and calm that we let flow from our heart to our arms and hands. 4. Seeing the beautiful and true in all things We think of the Persian legend of Christ Jesus, who admired the beautiful teeth of a dead dog while the disciples saw only ugliness at least a small kernel of the true and the beautiful can be discovered in everything. When this exercise is continued, it gives a feeling of great joy. 5. Continually being open to learning new things. We should never say, I have never heard that, I don't believe it, or that can't be. Whatever is told to us, we should at least keep the possibility open of learning something from it. Thus we can learn from children, animals, from all things. This creates the feeling as if we could also partially perceive outside our body. Number 6. This exercise is a combination of the previous five, which can be taken together two by two if we wish. Through this exercise we acquire a feeling as if we had grown larger beyond our skin. That's the end of that esoteric lesson. The next esoteric lesson was given in Stuttgart on August 16, 1908, notes from the collection of Elizabeth Freda. The place of death in human life is to be discussed. The period of time between birth and death was not always as self-contained for humans as it is today. One of the masters of wisdom and harmony of feelings has said, human beings are immortal, If they want to be. When humans threw themselves entirely into the physical world, it claimed all of their interest. That was the necessary stage of evolution. People today often think, if I just strive here on the earth to live rightly, then after my death I will certainly experience what it is like in that world. This appears to be very logical. It is, however, completely wrong. By being indifferent to the spiritual world here, we weave a veil around us, so that after death we will see nothing. Therefore thinking about the spiritual world is not as impractical and ill-equipped for life as it might appear. The ancient Rosicrucians called this interest in the physical world estimatio, the interest we place in things that binds us to them. It is not our looking at outer objects in itself, but our interest in them that binds us. This interest should not be killed, but rather transformed. We should have just as much interest in spiritual ideas as for the things in the physical world. The descriptions the teacher gives us of supersensible worlds should make a greater impression on us than if we were to cut our finger. As long as that is not the case, our interest is still outwardly directed. This transformation of estimatio has been taught in all ages, but in a certain sense it has never been as difficult as now, since we are so completely connected to the physical world. Yet a different method is necessary for every age. Thus the Eastern and Western esotericism are one and the same. The same masters who preside over one also preside over the other, and both lead to the same heights. But their methods must be different. That's the end of that esoteric lesson. The next esoteric lesson was given in Leipzig in, in September, sometime between the 2nd and the 14th, 1908. Manuscript from Alice Kinkle. Number one, lesson. Esotericists must have trust. That is something that they must write deeply into their souls. There are four dangers for esotericists that they must conquer and overcome. Number one, the first danger is the materialistic danger that lies in the physical body, or this danger is the physical body. Number two, the clairvoyant danger that sits in the etheric body. Number three, the magical danger that is brought by the astral body. Number four, the mystical danger is the eye. The second part of the lesson deals with the reflection of macrocosms and microcosms. Number two lesson. We must stop using sayings such as, quote, I had the best intentions, but it turned out badly. Instead, we must feel the gravity of the wor- words, I should know. In esotericism, only the deed is important, thus only what has been done. In higher worlds, incompetence is guilt. The materialistic danger is present when the I, the lower I, closes off access to what is above. Egotism constantly increases. The clairvoyant danger exists when we pull down higher worlds. We can become worse through the exercises if we pull the higher worlds down. The magical danger expresses itself when we believe that we are receiving commands and so forth. But we will never hear commands from higher beings. They never say you should. The mystical danger is the one in which we confuse our own desires with what comes from above. The exercises work under all circumstances. Through them we receive new organs. We must experience and feel our way through the spiritual world in order to become at home in it. That's the end of that esoteric lesson. The next esoteric lesson was given in Berlin on October 25, 1908. Manuscript from Alice Kinkel. October 25, 1908, was the day of the general meeting of the Theosophical Society. Everything said to us in these lessons, we are to regard as a message from the Master that is entrusted to us. We can receive what is said to us in this way with the right attitude, but what we make of it depends upon our degree of development. When we are meditating, then our soul is in the world in which the Masters work, and it is united with the stream that the Masters are sending into the world. It then contributes to the overcoming of the death of humankind by life. When we close ourselves off from perception through the senses, the astral currents of the gods can flow in. Imagine a plant in the sun, how it blossoms and flourishes and a plant that is in a dark cellar. The second plant also blossoms, but then dies out, because its little etheric body is no longer strong enough to maintain itself independently. It merges with the ether of the world. We have our sensory perception, because our astral body has grown so strong that it closes itself off from the influences of the gods, we kill these at the periphery of our astral body, and thus color and sound come into existence through the stoppage of the astral currents. There are consequences for someone who without permission betrays the mysteries that are revealed to the pupil. Why must esotericism remain a secret in the highest sense? Because the path has dangers, that would injure those who are unprepared. A parable is presented, that there are mysteries in a secret temple, but that there is also a key and a path to it. This path has thorns. But with proper meditation and preparation, it is as if a person is walking on pure velvet, otherwise the thorns would tear him or her apart. And if the key is placed in the lock by an unprepared hand and turned, the unprepared person is thrown backward by a mighty spiritual force. However, the key opens for those who are prepared, and the mysteries of the temple are revealed to them. Those who betray the mysteries to others who have not received the call are like people who saw off the branch on which they are sitting, and the unprepared who demand the mysteries from us. They are demanding that we should saw off the branch on which we are sitting. They would like it for themselves, but they thereby avoid the duty to work for humankind. Earlier human beings did not have sensory perception. Rather, through the physical, behind which stood the spirit, the emanations of the gods went into the human astral body and humans saw a picture rise up within them. It was an inner experience. They felt, the gods want thus and such in me. Now the human astral body is so strong that since the eye has entered it, human beings can say, I will. They are closed off against the influence of the gods. If that had happened all at once... When the eye entered into human beings, then like a powerful bolt of lightning, the spiritual world would suddenly have appeared to human beings and would have killed humankind. This appearance of the spiritual world now occurs slowly. The meditant keeps it open for humankind and transforms the cosmic astral sphere. The price of sensory perception is estrangement from the influence of the gods. End of that esoteric lesson. The next esoteric lesson was given in Munich on November 8, 1908. Manuscript from Matilda Scholl and Anonymous. Outwardly and in terms of content, esoteric contemplations need not differ very much at all from exoteric lectures. What is important is that one bears in mind that in esoteric lessons, the masters of wisdom and harmony of feelings are speaking to us. The how, in quotes, is meaningful, and that we allow the effects of the esoteric lesson to live in our soul. They are given to us so that we gladly think back on them and allow them to form a central kernel in our soul. They are the supplement to the exercises that an esotericist must do. we know that through these meditations our astral body undergoes colossal changes, that we ourselves transform our astral body, which until then was undivided and unordered, but nevertheless was an harmonious whole within itself. We create islands in it, distinct pockets, so to speak, through which we begin to form organs. These astral organs are the channels through which the masters can send messages from higher worlds into evolution and foster it. By independently forming astral organs, we intervene in the divine world order, provoke it to come forth, so to speak, by using forces that until now the divine world order used for other purposes indeed for protection against the effects of negative characteristics on the astral body. Esotericists must, above all, make the effort to be objective concerning the soul qualities of their fellow human beings, to notice their negative qualities and be able to bear them without condemning them. For example, they should say, I see that this person is vain and ambitious, but at the present stage of his or her development, these characteristics are just as necessary as other positive ones. Here we use a comparison with a tree. In a tree, the outer bark, despite the fact that it is the dying part of the organism, is necessary to protect the inner part, in which the life juices and life forces are flowing. Part of the forces must be used to form the bark, If all the forces were used for it, then the tree would lignify, dry up and die. But nature has arranged things so that the inner life forces of the tree work against this by regulating the process. It is the same way with normal people with respect to their negative qualities, let's say ambition and vanity, and their effects on the astral body. Through the divine ordering of the world, the astral body has within it forces that always work against the effects of ambition and vanity. Under the influence of these qualities, it has approximately this appearance, as if it were interlarded with rays of light in the form of needles, whose brightness diminished toward the outside. That these needles do not penetrate deeper into the astral body of ordinary people, and completely permeate them and tear them to pieces, is the result of the divine ordering of the world, when it sends astral forces from the inner astral body to its borders, just as a tree sends forces to its bark, and so transforms these needles into a protective wall facing outward. As objective and lenient as esotericists must be with these qualities in other people, they must be strict with themselves so as not to grant them entry. For they employ these protective forces to other ends. Their astral body is thus defenseless against the penetration of the needles. And if the astral body is permeated by these needles, then the physical body can decline into chronic ill health. Another negative soul quality with which lazy people are often afflicted is envy. It arises in the soul when people compare themselves and their accomplishments with others and then feel pain at the superiority of others. In the astral body this soul quality is expressed when it darkens it. Its substance loses its transparency and becomes cloudy. In this case, however, divine forces also restore order from within in normal people. A third negative quality is anger. It is expressed in the astral body when it creates condensations with sharp spikes, approximately like this, and there's a picture. Since esotericists no longer have the protective forces available to other people, they must consciously apply other forces. There actually are remedies to help them, only they are of an entirely different sort than what is advised by others with good intentions. For example, it is often said that we should overcome vanity, ambition, envy, etc., by fighting them, by engaging them. For esotericists, this would be absolutely the wrong thing to do. The proper remedies lie in an entirely different field and have absolutely no resemblance to or points of contact with the vices to be eliminated. In order to work against the injurious effects of ambition and vanity, for example, esotericists are not allowed to fight these within themselves for in doing so they would be too much concerned with themselves, and that is exactly what fosters these faults. The medicine for eliminating this fault is not to concern oneself with oneself, but with other people in general, which means to reflect intensely on human beings and their sevenfold nature, their various bodies. If we do this on every occasion... When we feel these qualities especially, then, with time, we will notice that they disappear more and more. The medicine for envy is to meditate on beauty, either as we find it in general in nature, or as it is expressed in detail in works of art or in especially perfect humans. We should drench ourselves entirely in enthusiasm for beauty in any form. It would be completely wrong to think in this way of the person whom we envy, or to attempt to battle envy directly with respect to him or her. If with every occasion that presents itself we occupy ourselves with something beautiful, then we will sense how envy gradually disappears. anger and agitation, that we can feel in response to various causes, let us say, for example, in response to the constantly increasing noise in the city. Esotericists must also battle in other ways than are attempted today. Books are now being written about the possibility of eliminating noise in the city, and associations are founded for this purpose. But what is important is not a dampening of noise in the city, but rather developing the power in oneself to close oneself off from it through meditation, through calmness of soul. What is damaging is not the noise, but rather the demons that run through our cities, and these are, so to speak, held in check by the noise. We must be able to live in the middle of noise without allowing ourselves to be provoked to anger by it. This is achieved by esotericists when they meditate on great words that have been given to us, when, for example, they intensively immerse themselves in the first four sentences of Tidal Light on the Path. Then we will gradually feel how the noise gets softer and more distant and finally disappears entirely, and with it the anger. Anger also has a highly deleterious influence on the physical body of an esotericist. Recommending the remedies described here to ordinary people would be entirely pointless. They have no significance for them. When we transform our faults in this meditative way, we are building a temple within, into which we can always withdraw from the noise of the city, in which we gather strength, from which we can draw power, calmness and enthusiasm. In so doing we will constantly feel more intensely that we are a large family that gathers around its luminous center the masters of wisdom and the harmony of feelings, from which flows down to us life and light. Our goal will always shine before us as a radiant star, which nothing more can darken. The end of that esoteric lesson. The next esoteric lesson was given in Berlin on november eleventh, nineteen oh eight. Record A Manuscript from Camilla Wandry Record B notes from Gunter Wagner supplemented by Wilhelm Huber Schleiden. Record A As esotericists, we must learn to regard everything exoteric as objectively as possible. If we have people standing before us in whom we see qualities that we do not like, we are never allowed to condemn them, but must strive to recognize everything correctly. Ambition and vanity are indeed soul qualities that esotericists battle within themselves, but without them much of what humans have attained in the world would not exist. They are part of the plan of the world. They have worth and unworth. For this reason we should not condemn people who have such qualities. Ambition and vanity are noticeable in the astral body as spikes, as pointed streams flowing from outside in, where they penetrate deeply and then go out again and are lost. Esotericists can use these spikes to repel such thoughts. They can use them as a safety device, against thoughts of ambition and vanity. However, if they fall prey to them, then these spikes penetrate esotericists much more deeply than exotericists. When we have temptations of this kind, we must immediately direct our thoughts to majestic, beautiful, lofty things that have been achieved by the outstanding geniuses of humanity. With envy, the etheric bodies attack in a way that can reach as far as the circulation of the blood. Something like a mist arises in the astral body that prevents one from clearly seeing people, things and relationships. In the moment when a feeling of envy announces itself, esotericists should think of venerable beings, of lofty works of art, of every revelation of beauty. With both soul qualities, we should also allow mental pictures of a schematic kind to work on us, such as we acquire in our theosophical work. Thoughts about the seven basic parts of the human being, or revolutionary processes of the earth. The human capacity for truthful thinking and imagining suffers from the above-mentioned vices. This capacity is strengthened and ordered by these remedies and the astral body again becomes healthy and harmonious. This human astral body, that is the skin of this astral body, is esoteric, in esotericism is called zero equals naught. The content is nothing for the spiritual world. We have to transform this nothing into a something. The astral body is also influenced by irritation, anger, especially rage. Here, hardened lumps with delicate roots are shown in the astral body. The swelling of the blood, the tumescence in the blood vessels, are safety measures to dissolve these lumps. With curiosity, wrinkles appear in the astral body that make it lax and defenseless. This laxity can extend into the physical. With talkativeness, tensions and pressures arise in the astral body. The way to encounter these appearances and gradually to overcome them is to acquire inner peace and calmness. We must learn completely to close ourselves off from the outer world for periods of time. If pupils find that hard, then they should imagine the caduceus, Mercury's staff, we will gradually desensitize ourselves to the unrest that accompanies a big city. It would accomplish nothing to remove the outer noise from the world because the pernicious inner effects would continue to exist. Through inner calmness, we gradually become able to keep the noise very far away. To a certain extent, we are allowed to worry But beyond this, a fading and desiccation of the brain occurs. Worry thoughts dig furrows in the brain, which are the cause for such thoughts having to be thought again and again. Thus the human physical body becomes a hindrance to progress. Facial features reflect these wrinkles. There is a certain astral substance that worry lives in, And there are individualities of a highly developed kind who take the, in quotes, worry substance of humanity upon themselves. Those are the Soters, readers aside, spelled S-O-T-E-R-S, end of readers aside. The greatest Soter, the greatest man of worry, was the Christ, end of record A, record B, Approach theosophy with earnestness and dignity. Regard everything exoteric as objectively as possible. For example, if we see a person who is ambitious and vain, then we do not want to condemn him or her, but rather say to ourselves, ambition and vanity are indeed soul qualities that an esotericist battles within. But without them, there is much in the present-day world that would not exist. They are part of the plan for the world. For this reason we should not condemn such people. Ambition and vanity are noticeable in the astral body as spikes, pointed inflows from outside inward, that penetrate deeply and then flow out and are lost. But there is also a protective measure to turn them back. Those people who are no longer subject to these qualities can use the forces that these protective measures represent in another way however if such thoughts of ambition and vanity come upon an esotericist then these spikes penetrate even more deeply it is the same with envy which creates a mist in the astral body and attacks the etheric body even to hindrances in the blood to the blood's circulation How can we respond to thoughts of ambition and vanity on the one hand and thoughts of envy on the other? In the first case, every time when these thoughts of ambition, of vanity, come over me, I should direct my thoughts toward majestic and beautiful things that will help me to overcome them. In the second case, when a feeling of envy overtakes me, I should allow art, really good works of art, to work on me, everything that is a revelation of beauty. And here there is an addition by another hand. Envy is fought by revering higher beings or lofty works of art. Ambition and vanity are fought through ideas of a schematic kind, like the members of the human being or the stages of cosmology. The power to think and imagine is weakened by these vices. It is strengthened, ordered and harmonized by the remedies. The vices are fought by frequently practicing voluntar- voluntarily produced calmness in the life of the soul. That's the end of that esoteric lesson. The next esoteric lesson was given in Berlin on November 17, 1908. Record A, notes from the literary remains of Matilda Scholl. Record B, notes from the collection of Elizabeth Freda. Record A. If esotericists still have anger or rage, curiosity or talkativeness in them, then these qualities produce great injury to their body. When they become angry, this is seen in the astral body as knots, as contractions. The welling of the blood, the tumescence of the blood vessels, are protective measures to dissolve these knots. Curiosity is shown as flaccidity, as folds in the astral body and has a desiccating effect on the physical body. At night, the astral body is not as limited as during the day. It merges, so to speak, with general astral matter, and thus other astral bodies can be sucked into it. With people who stand in outer life, the limited day life still works into the life of the astral body, and they still behave themselves rather decently. However, with esoteric pupils... This outer life is no longer so strong, and then they follow all their passions, they follow their drives, etc. Talkativeness, when someone experiences something and then must immediately tell it to others, is shown in dispersion. When, through exercises, spiritual organs are being formed in the night, then these dispersions cause these organs to be torn apart. The slackness in the astral body means that it remains soft and has no steadiness. Esoteric pupils should arrange to have a quarter hour of peace and calmness, absolute spiritual calm, through their own will, even in the loudest noise. They can attain this spiritual calm better through their will, in the city in noise, than in the greatest isolation in the country, because it actually depends upon willpower. They should create inner peace by withdrawing into themselves and allowing the noise to disappear in the ever-increasing distance. Meditation not only brings a blessing to the meditant, what is achieved by this work returns to the cosmos and contributes something useful to the whole world. End of record A. Record B. Curiosity calls forth in the astral body a slack, wrinkled character. Talkativeness calls forth strong tensions in the astral body. Rage and anger knot up with root-like extensions in the astral body. All of these vices and their consequences in the astral body are fought by means of frequently practiced, voluntarily summoned peace and calmness in the soul. That's the end of that esoteric lesson. The next esoteric lesson was given in Hamburg on December 6th. 1908, Notes from Amelie Wagner Deeply moved by the lesson, I want to write some things down. Later, I did not get any further. Whether I still can? We heard about the effects of passion on people, how they have quite different consequences for an esotericist than for exotericists. Vanity, ambition, arrogance show themselves in the third body, astral body, as pointed spikes. These spikes become daggers that stab the astral body and lacerate it. With exotericists, the effects work, parentheses at night in a question, compensating for these devastations so that they hinder the destruction. It is different with esotericists; They have no strength to set against the destruction because they are using this strength somewhere else drawing, astral body, spikes above, called forth by vanity, ambition, and arrogance, close parenthesis. How can they fight vanity, ambition, and arrogance? Not directly, not by thinking about these vices, but rather by, in the moment when a feeling of vanity appears, directing their thoughts towards something noble that Theosophy teaches us. One could object that there are many who are occupied exclusively with higher things, and who cannot be absolved of vanity and arrogance. There even exists a great danger, precisely as a consequence of involvement with higher things, of presuming in one's heart that one is above one's fellow human beings. For this reason, this admonishment must be properly taken up. The exercise should be carried out in the moment. Envy produces a milky cloudiness in the third body. As soon as envy appears in the soul, we must attempt to admire the good and the beautiful in the one whom we would like to envy, attempt to awaken respect and the envy will disappear. If rage and fury attack the soul and an outburst of fury threatens, it is difficult to dampen the fire in the moment, but even here there is a remedy for those who suffer from such temptations. They should lie down quietly for half an hour daily and contemplate, not anger, envy, and so forth, but rather anything else entirely different, spiritual truths, laws of the universe, etc. But they should try to hold on to a specific thought for a quarter of an hour. This will lead to the time when they will have the strength, when the occasion calls for it, to suffocate rage and fury immediately when it wells up in them, And finally, these feelings will no longer tempt them at all. Rage, passionate anger are balled up in clumps in the third body. Curiosity creates wrinkles in the third body. Here, one should think of the higher self. And here's an addition to the record, additions and corrections. Vanity and ambition are necessary for the exotericist. They serve as an impetus for advancement. The injurious effects on the first body are ameliorated by the third body at night. That is where the counter-effects appear. End of that esoteric lesson. Esoteric lesson given in Berlin on December 21st, 1908. Manuscript from Camilla Vandri. The venerable Zoroaster would not have been able to reflect upon what was given to him in moments of transcendence. He received at such times influence from the Spirit of the sun in a direct way. He saw Ahura Mazda, and in him the Christ. He prepared the impulse that Christ was to bring to the earth. He initiated his pupil Moses in the following way. One day at noon, when it was a new moon, he allowed Moses to see by means of a power that he sent to his head. The moon spirit, the devaconic sounds of sunlight reflected. Hermes, the initiated, excuse me, Hermes, he initiated directly into the secret of the sun spirit. He allowed him to see the sun at midnight through the transparent earth, after he had previously received from Zoroaster the power of the sun spirit. The Osiris, Isis, Horus religion came from this. Zoroaster appeared again as zarathos or Nazarathos, and was the teacher of Pythagoras, who led the mysteries in the age of the Greeks as a final preparation for the appearance of Christ. The king under whom Zoroaster taught was later incarnated as Cyrus, and later in the Middle Ages, Cyrus was again a king, Charlemagne. There's Charlemagne is in question... Uh, is in parentheses with two question marks, so I'm not sure what that means. Moses was initiated with the forces of the astral body. Jesus spoke through the I, capital, to us, which penetrates all three bodies. For this reason, he said, you shall love God with all your heart, physical body, your whole psyche equals soul, etheric body, with all your forces, ether, astral body, your whole mind as I equals I. Zoroaster had given the forces of his own etheric body to Moses, those of his astral body to Hermes, and he gave his eye to Jesus. As Zoroaster himself, he worked through his physical body. End of that esoteric lesson. And here is the last esoteric lesson of uh, 1908, given in Berlin on December 28, 1908, record from Anonymous. Zoroaster. His earthly protector was King Vishtasp, who later, as Cyrus, spread and consolidated the teaching of Zoroaster. Nazaras, or Nazaranos, Chaldean initiate, was the Eye of Zoroaster. He inspired Pythagoras, who thereby spread Christianity in Greece. Then the Eye of Zoroaster was incarnated in Jesus of Nazareth who was for this reason able to receive Christ himself into his bodies. Zoroaster had his pupils. In Hermes his teaching reached as far as the astral body, in Moses as far as the etheric body, in Pythagoras as far as the physical body. Hermes's initiation happened at Christmas time, and he saw what was later to be given to humans in the mystery of Golgotha. He beheld the entire evolution of the planet and what was connected with it. Moses' initiation went into his etheric body. Zoroaster could give him something from his own light body. In bad weather, storm and fog, he could only see the sun weakly, but he could see the moon clearly in its first quarter. For this reason Yahweh later appeared to him in the burning bush. Pythagoras' initiation went into his physical body. He brought this to humanity in his propositions. The seven holy Rishis were led by Manu, each one of which was initiated in the mysteries of one of the planets. Zoroaster, however, was initiated in the mysteries of the Sun, of Christ himself. That is the end of that esoteric lesson. And the end of the esoteric lessons for the year 1908, and the end of this section of the recording.